morning in Exodus chapter 5, and we will be reading verses 1 through 13, and this is extension of the last time when I preached, we spoke about um, some different uh, points of Moses here, and we're going to go forward and see how this unfolds. In Acts chapter, I'm sorry, that's uh, for Sunday school class, normally. Exodus chapter 5, we read verses 1 through 13. And afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. And they said, The God of the Hebrews hath met with us. Let us go, we pray thee, three days' journey into the desert and sacrifice unto the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. And the king of Egypt, and the king of Egypt said unto them, Wherefore do ye, Moses and Aaron, let the people from their works get you unto your burdens? And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land now are many, and ye make them rest from their burdens. And Pharaoh commanded the same day the taskmasters of the people and their officers, saying, Ye shall no more give the people straw to make brick as heretofore. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. And the tale of the bricks which they did make heretofore ye shall lay upon them, Ye shall not diminish aught thereof, for they be idle. Therefore they cry, saying, Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let their more work be laid upon the men, that they may labor therein, and let them not regard vain words. And the taskmasters of the people went out, and their officers, and they spake to the people, saying, Thus saith Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go ye, get you straw where you can find it, yet not aught of your work shall be diminished. So the people were scattered abroad throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble instead of straw. And the taskmasters hastened them, saying, Fulfill your works, your daily tasks, as when there was straw. Last time we were talking about Moses, we were talking about his objections. There were actually five going to go into the mall, but remember he said, who am I? How will they believe me? What am I going to say to them? And he said, I'm not an eloquent speaker. I can't speak with smooth, very silky words. And the Lord answered him, always takes care of us, never misses a thing. Says, all right, well, I'll tell you what, I'll give Aaron, your brother, he will assist you and he will go in with you before Pharaoh. That what a hard, hard job that Moses at his age especially would have to do and go before the king of Egypt that could destroy him, so the Lord sends Aaron with him. Moses reveals all these signs and wonders, and God armed him. He gave him Aaron. He gathered the elders of the enormous tribes of Israel. And always remember, how wonderful is the demand of Jehovah being piously bold to have his people delivered. How wonderful is that that he would deliver us. Why? And we're going to answer the question, why? And who is his people? Here now, 
we have and we see as you start reading the Old Testament and you start in Genesis, all the way back in creation, you see the cosmic war going on. We don't see this because we are very weak, vulnerable people, but God sees it. There has been a cosmic war going on since way before time. And we see already in the Genesis, we saw the cosmic war, the heavenly war between God and Satan in the garden. We see the great war between God and Satan with the great flood, how he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah with fire, Joseph being sold into slavery with a massive confrontation. And now the big showdown we're looking at this morning, and this is a big venue, Moses against Pharaoh. Boy, that would make a great boxing event, wouldn't it? (laughs) Moses against Pharaoh. Aaron has already had the privilege of delivering the signs to the elders. Let's go back here just a little bit to Exodus chapter 4, and let's read verses 27 to 31 and get a little bit of a prequel here. And the Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. And he went and met him in the mount of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord who had sent him and all the signs which he had commanded him. And Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel. And Aaron spake all the words which the Lord had spoken unto Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he had looked upon their affliction, then they bowed their heads and worshipped. And they worshipped him. How wonderful is that? We see here that Israel was told in a speech that the Lord looked upon their afflictions. They believed and they openly worshipped God and they were praising Him with hopes of their afflictions being lifted. Can we have that in our hearts as Christians? Can I beg you this morning to read this and have it hide it in your hearts that when you have afflictions, you worship the Lord, you love Him by reading the Word and by praying, He will deal with your afflictions? And there's only one way that we want Him to deal with our afflictions, and that is His way, our Lord's way. And this is what He does with Moses. Remember, this what we just read is just the beginning. This all didn't just start and come together and end. It took a while. There was a lot of work to be done. But the Lord would avenge. That's the, the title of the message this morning, that Jehovah, uh, He avenges the, the afflictions. And this is how He does it. What would, what would happen if Israel's afflictions were lifted all at once? We see here when Pharaoh's heart would remain, it would remain cold and frozen, and the Lord would take his time with Pharaoh, and he would deal with him his own way. And you see the drama unfold is what, what actually eventually happens to Pharaoh. Pharaoh's heart would remain frozen. How would Israel react to this mediator? Remember, Moses was no doubt a type of a Christ. He was. He wasn't the Christ, but he was a messenger. He was a mediator, and he was there to take the words of the Lord, and he was there to give it to his people, thus giving him the credentials of a prophet. He was a prophet, and he was a priest. He was not a king. No one ever held all three offices other than our Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now we see the great confrontation. We see here in verses 1 through 5. Here Moses and Aaron face Pharaoh. We see here that he is, Pharaoh is basically the son of the false gods. He's the king of Egypt, the one who could kill them on the spot and make things far worse for Moses' people. We have to put ourselves in Moses' shoes. What would we do? What would it be like? Look at this confrontation. 
Moses and Aaron had just gathered the elders and they spoke to them. They they thought they had hope. They thought they would be delivered. And we see here Moses is obeying God and facing Pharaoh as God directed him. He speaks God's words and he says, Let my people go. Now that could be a very, very long series of messages, just that phrase in and of itself. All of those that are standing in this confrontation were all creations of God. Pharaoh didn't believe that, but even though he didn't believe it, it was true. He was created of God, so was Moses, so were the elders, so were the Egyptian soldiers. And with all of them together, why is the Lord saying, my people? What is he talking about? He created them all, so who is he separating? And the question is today, can we in our hearts know that God is saying that we are his people Are you his person? Are you? And how do we know that? From this moment after training by God alone, speaking directly with God and being encouraged that he would be the instrument of Israel's deliverance, everything goes wrong from the outset. They go right into Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, No, 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 no. He says, No. Here's Moses' first attempt at begging for the deliverance of God's people. is disastrous, actually. And how does it get so tough in our Christian lives when we feel like we are obeying the Lord? Here, Moses, you have to go back to what we were studying in in Exodus 3 and 4 when Moses makes it all very plain five different times and he says to to Jehovah, I don't want to go. I'm not eloquent. They're not going to listen to me. And no matter what the Lord tells them, he says at the, very on, at the very end of it all, send somebody else. But there he is, standing in front of Pharaoh, who won that battle, and how the Lord wins all the battles. And he's standing there, and he's basically saying, he's basically must be saying to himself, I have obeyed the Lord. I'm doing what he's told me. What's going on? This isn't working out already. When we become Christians, we expect everything to go so well, and we get the notion that we are under this divine protection through God's grace, and we are, but we often tend to forget that, and we kind of go away from that when things kind of go a little bit bad, don't we? Even though we live in an age of advancements in technology with tools to make our lives more efficient, scheduled, productive, and successful, we see that just like Moses, it does not always turn out very good, does it? As Christians, we go to witness and we try to do the Lord's work and we get slammed. Well, the Lord says, keep working. That's what Moses did. So what do we do? We keep working like Moses did. We carry that great rod of God as Moses did. And he persevered. He kept working because of the Lord. We need to keep working. I love how Moses was a hard worker. I mean, how old was he now? He was in his 80s. And you know, it's sad how I've seen in my lifetime many gentlemen, many, many in the ministry, they get old enough and they want to just go away from it. Moses was just getting started. And he's holding the staff. He's now going to go. He's going to fight this battle with his brother. And he's ready to go. You know, Moses wrote a song and it teaches us a very great lesson in Psalm 90. We read verses Psalm 90, verses 16 and 17. Let thy work appear unto thy servants and thy glory unto their children and let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Yea, the work of our hands establish thou it. Remember, hard work was never condemned in the garden. 
Adam was working before sin ever even hit the earth. He was already working. Hard work is a good thing and something we really lack today, especially in our society. Here Moses and Aaron go boldly to the face of the king and he, they fire basically two torpedoes at the hall of the ship of Pharaoh and they hit his honor and they hit his integrity. Thus saith the Lord, let my people go. That hit him right in the heart because Pharaoh believed he was their deity. I mean, if you lived in Egypt in the day, they worshipped, but everything they worshipped but God. Where does that sound familiar today? They worshipped the river. The Lord used that against them in the plagues. They worshipped the insects. He used that against them in the plagues. They worshipped the sun. He turned the lights out on them. And everything that they worshipped, he used against them. And basically, they worshipped everything but Jehovah. Thus saith the Lord, let my people go. God had already claimed Israel as his people. Was there a higher God than Pharaoh? Pharaoh didn't believe so. Here this puny king Pharaoh would be offended. And compared the true deity, this Pharaoh... Compared to God, this little deity that he thought he was was no more than a fly, if that. Pharaoh believed he is the one who should be honored. We go back to Exodus chapter 4.22. It says, And thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. And we see here an interesting, a very interesting lesson about the name of God. How this time, it's fascinating how Moses, he goes in and the Lord tells him, you now use another one of my ineffable names, one of my great names. First of all, back in Exodus chapter 3, you were telling, I, the Lord says, I told you, Moses, did you tell the people of Israel, if you, don't, uh, if, they don't, if you think that they will not understand who you're talking about regarding who God is, you tell them, I am that I am, I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, he's not telling them to say, I'm the God of your fathers. He's now saying, I am the God of my people. I am the God of Israel. Isn't that beautiful? God has already claimed Israel as his people. And we see here in Exodus chapter 4.22, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. And first they say, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel. Moses and Aaron proceed to clarify that these are the words of God. And he, they are telling him, and this hits his integrity, You are not God, but Jehovah is God. You are not. And the God of Israel is who we will worship. He hit his honor. He hit Pharaoh's honor and his integrity. And he, they made it very plain, just as the Hebrew boys did before Nebuchadnezzar, we are not confused about this matter with 3,000 very, very powerful people that the three Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were standing there, and they all bowed down to that big idol. They said, we are not thinking twice. We are not confused about this matter. We will not bow down to you. And those three boys stood up. And this is what Moses does here. He stands up. He stands up to Pharaoh. He says, you are not our God. We go back to Genesis chapter 33, 20. Jacob had erected this altar, and he erected there an altar and called it Elohe-Israel, or the God who is the God of Israel. Jacob had built this altar in praise, worship, and remembrance of the Mighty One. 
And we see that the God of Israel is the person who is referred to here. Israel, which only consisted of Jacob's small family at the time, the Lord said it would grow, and it would grow, and it would grow, and to this day, many love the Lord Jesus Christ, and they are of the children of Israel. They are God's people. Pharaoh here is regarded as a god. He regards Israel as his people to enslave them and have them be obedient to him. And Moses is making it very clear. You have one choice, Pharaoh. You you need to listen to this because we are his people. Once again, why does he call him my people? Why does God call them, he says, my people? You see, here Pharaoh was in the midst of building this great kingdom, building the edifices, the works at Python and Ramses, and he built the arsenals and maintained the storehouses. Well, why would he be upset? That's a very big question. Why would Pharaoh be upset with Moses and Aaron asking them, let me take my people? The Israelites were good workers. They had integrity. And when they worked hard, they produced This could crush the Egyptian economy. We remember the Babylonian siege where Nebuchadnezzar carted off the people of Judah 600 miles. And remember, who did Nebuchadnezzar go after first? What did he want first before everybody was taken 600 miles into the Babylonian captivity? He wanted the craftsmen. He wanted the blue-collar workers, the people that knew how to build things and fix things and maintain the roadways, maintain the buildings. He wanted the artists, he wanted the medical doctors, and he went after them first. 2 Kings chapter 24, 16, we read, And all the men of might, even 7,000, and craftsmen and smiths a thousand, all that were strong and apt for war, even then the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon. He wanted these, the, he wanted the ops men, he wanted the soldiers, He wanted those that could fight, and he wanted to make them and empower them, but they were still under an enslavement. If Pharaoh loses these Israelites, he loses his workforce, and he wants them to make straw. I mean, he wants them to make bricks out of straw. Here, Pharaoh had the same work ethic. He used Israel to build his empire, and this visit by Moses there would greatly compromise his agenda. Let my people go, that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. They were God's people, and Pharaoh had no right to them and no right to keep them in bondage. Why not? Free my people? Why? So they may physically worship me in my sanctuary, the Lord says. They could not worship the Lord at home in Egypt. They needed to get up and go to church. Why does God call them my people? Because they are the ones that worship me. That's it. You read the beginning verses, read them over and over and over again until they start really sticking in your heart. Because now you will learn, you want to ask who God's people are? Those that worship Him. We just read it at the ends of Exodus chapter 4 where they worshipped Him. They had already worshipped Him. Pharaoh had not worshipped Him. So Pharaoh would wind up drowning in the Red Sea because he had not worshipped God. The Lord would destroy him. But those that went out to have the feasts and to hold the sacrifice, to go out in the wilderness, into the temple, and physically go to the sanctuary, not staying home in Egypt, which was basically their proverbial Zoom, they went out physically to the sanctuary. 
They are God's people. And so, if you want to know if you're one of God's people, do you love to worship Him? Is if you don't, you're not. It's that simple. You're, there's nowhere in the middle there where there's some little purgatory where you can hide in. You either love to worship Him or you don't. And if you don't love to worship Him, you're not His people. That's that simple. So that's what we're learning here this morning. We see here that they, the answer lies in the part of verse 1, and we've gone forward, we'll go back to verse 1, that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. God's people are to worship the Lord in service and in sacrifice. They were not called to worship Pharaoh in enslavement and obedience to him. The Lord was bringing them out of this to worship him to reveal to them what true salvation really is. And here this deliverance is a big window into the atonement that our Lord Jesus Christ gives us on the cross to deliver us out of our sinful Egypt and our enslavement, to pull us out and to... He says, he that is free is free indeed. And it's only through the blood of Jesus Christ. And this is a window. And we see this transferring right into the Passover where the blood is put on the lintel of the doors. And we see that blood without the shedding of blood... There is no remission of sins. And right now Moses is there to pull these people out and to have them worship God. How many remember 1956, Ten Commandments, the movie? How many remember that? The Ten Commandments. Who was the star? Right. Yul Brenner was in it. And also uh, John Derrick, that's right. <laughs> I was just thinking that. He was in it. That film... That film was actually on location in Cairo, Egypt, the Sinai Peninsula. The budget was $13 million. And this account of Moses in the first year grossed over $122.7 million and is the highest paid film in 1956 and thereafter for the next decade. With everybody watching and getting a little window of who Moses was in the movie theaters, they left out a really big part of what this was all about, and as incredible as it was, and as wonderful, I love to see how Moses was so popular, <laughs> and they're still making tons of money off of that movie today, thus reifying the, the authenticity of Scripture, although that movie wasn't altogether uh, biblically uh, uh, authentic. You could see the interest people have in it. But you know what's fascinating? One of the things that was left out, which is left out a lot of these movies and a lot of things, they didn't say why they left, and that Moses was going after them. They were pulled out. Moses was working his heart out to get them out of there to worship God, and he said it himself. And we see here, going all the way back to verse 2, and verse 1 at the end, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. Then verse 3, And they said, The God of the Hebrews hath met with us. Let us go, we pray thee, three days' journey into the desert, and sacrifice unto the Lord our God, and here's the necessary conclusions of those that will not worship him, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. That is the outcome of a lack of worship. God delivers his people out of the hand of their enemies that they may serve him cheerfully. Isaiah chapter 52, verses 5 through 6, we read, Now therefore what have I here, saith the Lord? Sorry if I'm going too fast. Once again, that's Isaiah 52, verses 5 and 6. Now therefore, what have I here, saith the Lord, that my people is taken away for naught? They that rule over them make them to howl, saith the Lord, 
and my name continually every day is blasphemed. Therefore my people shall know my name, therefore shall they know in that day that I am he that doth speak, behold, it is I. Remember, always remember Isaiah 42.8 where we read, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, not Pharaoh, neither my praise to graven images. The Lord holds all of the copyrights to worship. Everything is to go to Him. God says my name is blasphemed, when we just read those verses, by those who oppress my people. Therefore, they will know my name. How? By deliverance. Here are the precious words of our Savior that reify God's love for His people. We read in Matthew chapter 10, verses 29 to 31, Matthew 10, 29 to 31, Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? And one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear ye not, therefore, ye are, more, ye are of more value than many sparrows. And I think that's a window into the heart of why God would come and send Moses to deliver his people. He loved them. If you love him, that is a manifestation. He loves you and you are his people. Let my people go. Well, this didn't go too well. We go to verse 4. And the king of Egypt said unto them, Moses, he says, And the king of Egypt said unto them, Wherefore do ye, Moses and Aaron, let the people from their works get you under your burdens? He cuts them down right there in front of everybody, and he says, basically, shut up, and you get back with your people, and you start making bricks. You go back with them. I don't care if you're their leaders. I don't care who you are. You go back and you help them with their burdens. You are now under an enslavement, and you're not going anywhere right now. Talk about a stiff upper lip. This is the first meeting in fair response. Who is the Lord? Why should I listen to Him to let His people go? Who is he? John Calvin says, But we must observe that the tyrant being devoted to idolatries thus insulted the God of Israel that he might manifest his great piety towards his false gods. That's where his piety lies, to his false gods. Sadly, we see that greatly today in America. Pharaoh replies, Who is the Lord? But I find it fascinating that he refers to God as Lord. You see that? He says, in verse 3, Let's go, The God of the Hebrews hath met with us. Let us go, we pray thee, in three days' journey into the desert, and sacrifice unto the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence with a sword. And the king of Egypt said unto them, Wherefore do ye, Moses and Aaron, let the people from their works get you under your burdens? And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land now are many, and ye make them rest from their burdens. And Pharaoh commanded the same day the taskmasters of the people and their officers, saying, Ye shall no more give the people straw to make brick, as heretofore let them go and gather, let them go and gather straw for themselves. And the tale of the bricks which they did make, in verse 8, Heretofore ye shall lay upon them, ye shall not diminish aught thereof, for they be idle, therefore they cry, saying, Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let their more work be laid upon them, that they may labor therein, and let them not regard vain words. And we see here how Jehovah is referred to as Moses and Aaron's Lord. If Pharaoh asks who he is, why does he know, and how does he know how to mention his name? 
We read Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. For when the Gentiles which have not the law do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. And the question that I asked this morning reading these verses, why was Pharaoh so offended at Moses and him speaking about his God. Why was Pilate so offended in Annas and Caiaphas of Jesus Christ speaking of his kingship? Why? If he doesn't exist, the Pharisees said he's not the Messiah. If God is not real, why does it anger and why does it infuriate people? And why do atheists take the name of the Lord and God in vain? Why? I don't believe in the bunny rabbit. I don't take the bunny rabbit's name in vain. I don't believe in Santa Claus. I don't take Santa Claus's name in vain. But why do people that say he does not exist mock him? And why does it provoke such anger in them? Because of that verse I just read you. If you go back to Jeremiah 33, you'll see the same kind of verse. The law of God is etched in all of our hearts. If you know that and you're a Christian, you can see things very plainly out there. And the Lord will direct you and He will teach you. All of God's commandments are etched in the hearts of His creation. So this is biblical proof that Pharaoh had knowledge, and he definitely was furious. He then says, Why should I obey His voice? Why should I let Israel go? I know Him not, and I will not comply. This brings up all since creation, two types of people. And it's very simple. And both of them... I'm going to say them in the superlative degree three times. Both are four-letter H words. You either declare God as holy, 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 as in Isaiah 6, or you will find hell, hell, hell. There's no in-between. There is no purgatory. There's no neutrality. Either He's holy, holy, holy. If you reject Him, it is nothing but an eternal hell, hell, hell. And that's what this is all about. The only conclusion to Pharaoh's reactions we see comes from that great book of Proverbs, chapter 16, verse 18. Pride goeth before destruction, and an haughty spirit before a fall. And that's what caused Cornwallis to lose the Revolutionary War, was his pride. And Washington found out, and he saw what his weaknesses were, and he knew just where to hit him. And that's, what, and that's all that it took. Proud men thinks them, think themselves to be too good to stoop to the authority of God Himself and be under His control. They cannot see the happiness and the pleasure and the peaceful joy that we have as being a child of God. And God is Lord over the children of pride. Read, if we read in Job chapter 41, verse 34, as we see the conclusion basically in this chapter of every horrible thing that happened to Job, we read, He beholdeth all high things. He is a king over all the children of pride. And this is after the Lord had told Job, listen, listen to me. Pharaoh openly defied God as hard was heartened, and he didn't even know that God hardened it. Now, that brings up really a great lesson about the parables. The disciples said, Lord, Lord, why do you speak in parables? Because those that have eyes cannot see, those that have ears cannot hear, I have blinded them. And we see this man... His eyes were blinded. He could not see because the Lord had closed him. It said the Lord had hardened his heart. 
Romans chapter 9, 17, we read, For the Scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. And this is the reason why this happened to Pharaoh. Why did he harden his heart? Pharaoh rejected God. And this is a direct manifestation of all the rejectors of Jesus Christ. John 12, 48, we read, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him the word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. Look at the rejectors today. Look at the rejectors in our country. We see, what about the ACLU who was greatly supported and pampered by Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, Joe Biden, George Bush? Look at all those who were supposed to be presidents. We see Barack Obama has a 79% lifetime rating from the ACLU. Obama supports the Employment Non-Discrimination Act, ENDA, federal hate crime legislation that includes sexual orientation, gender identity, civil unions, and the repeal of Don't Ask and Don't Tell, and retains the high ratings also for his strong alliance with pro-choice. He opposed the Supreme Court Gonzalez versus Carhart ruling of 2017 with 2007, which upheld a federal ban on live partial abortions after birth. This was supposed to defend the babies, and he he vetoed it. He also vetoed it four times in the Senate floor in Illinois. If a baby is aborted and that baby lives, can we allow the baby to live? He said no. Kill it again four times. Look it up. This is what we have. These wicked organizations hate Christianity and anything that has to do with Christ. We see that Moses replies and he says, I have been approached by the true and living God of our Hebrew nation. We are obligated to him. We will not bend. So we see now the formulation. Look how the Lord strengthened Moses. And look how it took time and how at one point Moses was saying, I can't do it, Lord. I can't do it, Lord. I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. Five times. And the Lord says, yes, you can. I'll be there with you. Moses makes a plea and an entreaty. He approaches Pharaoh with great humility, and he is meek about this. Pharaoh was very violent. So what happens? What is the result here? We see here that as we move forward in verses 6 through 9, that Pharaoh's reaction is to increase the burdens. He says, "...produce the same quantity of bricks now without straw." Keep up with production, but now you will not have a key ingredient. I'm going to make it real interesting. I'm going to pull the straw from you. The bricks they were making were almost the size of a cinder block. What rebar is to concrete is what straw was to heated clay to form a brick. It bound the clay together to make it hold together to form a good structurally sound brick. And that's how they made their buildings and how they were so efficient and they were so strong in their foundations. We see that Pharaoh reifies what a heartless tyrant he is by removing the straw. And he says, they be idle. They were not idle. They were working hard and they were doing a good job. And so because he's furious at Moses and he hates God, what he does is he goes right after his people. The people of Israel were hardly lazy. They built Pharaoh, his great kingdom. They farmed and they irrigated his dry land. 
Pharaoh fiercely misrepresents Israelites as lame excuse to increase their burdens, and he confirms his mandate and now refers to God's directives to Moses and Aaron as vain words. When he did that, he not only defied God by saying, I don't know who he is, he said that Moses and Aaron's words are idle. You're idle, and you need to get back to work. So he basically just took away all of the veracity, all of the authenticity, the truth of Scripture, threw it away. We've seen that many, t- many times today in our educational system. They take the word of the Lord and they call them idle and vain and they laugh and they mock at them. Again, as Dave said in the Sunday school class today, I love that. How long, O oh Lord, how long is this going to go on? You know what was really hard? You've got to get in and think about this a little bit, about the whole farming aspect. And always I love all of the farming and the agricultural inferences in Scripture when the Lord used many of them for parables. He loved hard work. The Lord loved the farmers. He spoke of the shepherds and He talked about them. And you have to remember how many years that the Israelites, going all the way back 400 years here, they're getting to the end of their enslavement. They knew every field that produced straw. They knew how to cut it. They knew how to get it. And they were producing straw faster than they could actually imagine. And when he pulled the straw, what he did was he shut down the different pastures where they knew in their brains where to get the straw. So what did they have to do now? They had to go scrounge out into all these unfamiliar fields and get all of the, anything that they could make straw out of, which made it ten times harder. They'd have to cut it, they'd have to haul it, they'd have to bring it back in on, the back, on their own backs, or maybe if they were blessed enough to have a horse or something, get it back. What a hard job. Look what they had to do. This was a bi-level command structure that followed Pharaoh's order to enforce this increased burden to hurt the Israelites. And we see that the Egyptian, these sectional leaders, much like our federal government today with the burdens they put on us with income tax, handed down the orders to the taskmasters who were basically labor gang bosses who in turn gave the orders to the Israelite foremen who operated like union leaders, and they beat them. They beat them. They physically beat these men. They were good workers. No straw was given. Once again, the areas that could be farmed to produce abundant straw were no doubt sectioned off, and they were made off limits. They would have to go back to the areas where the straw had already been cut down and pull up the stubble from the good straw, no doubt clean it, and use that to bind the brick. It's a very laborious process and very, very hard to get through. And we see here, verses 12 to 13, Pharaoh's unjust usage of the Israelite was a means of sending a message to God himself, and this to say, who are you to rule over me? Oh, that's serious. And we've seen all down through the ages who's lost that battle, and we all haven't lived long enough to really see the fruition of everyone else that's going to lose that battle. Adolf Hitler lost that battle, didn't he? We see him, Saddam Hussein, he lost that battle. And the battle will always be lost because the Lord will always avenge us, His people. Why do you think we're still worshiping here today? There are many countries today, if we were doing this, there would be armed guards throwing bombs here. I've seen pictures of kids in Syria who were going to church with, they're nine years old with AR-15 rifles and their parents have been blown up. I've read about the accounts that have come in, Ligonier Ministries sends it out, and there's the Barnabas aid and all these other ones, and these kids are going trying to have church and their families have been blown up for going and having a Bible. 
If you, if you, it used to be, I don't know if it's the same way today, but if you go into flying to Saudi Arabia and you have a Bible, they have professional shredders right there. First of all, when you go into the lobby of the airport, there's an American flag for everybody to trample over it. And there are commercial shredders where you take your Bibles if you have them and the guards will make you run them through a commercial shredder. And you see that Pharaoh's unjust uses of the Israelites was a means of sending a message to God himself as if to say, who are you? These are my people. I will do whatever I want with them. He would also have used this force to send a message to any opposing country, dare mess with me. Moses is now in the middle of a seemingly impossible situation, and no doubt the Lord was refining him in the people of Israel. We see here in verses 11 to 13, Go ye, get you straw where ye can find it, yet not aught of your work shall be diminished. So the people were scattered abroad throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble instead of straw, and the taskmasters hastened them, saying, Fulfill your works, your daily tasks, as when there was straw. Verse 14, we go forward a little bit. And the officers of the children of Israel, which Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and demanded, Wherefore have ye not fulfilled your task in making brick both yesterday and today as heretofore? Then the officers of the children of Israel came and cried unto Pharaoh, saying, Wherefore dealest thou thus unto thy servants? There is no straw given unto thy servants. And they say to us, Make brick, and behold, thy servants are beaten, but the fault is thine own people. But he said, Ye are idle, ye are idle. Therefore ye say, Let us go and do sacrifice to the Lord. Verse 17, it's where he mocks God right to his face again, and he says, You're going to go sacrifice to your Lord? No, you're not. You're going to, you're going to worship me. That's what you're going to do. Go therefore now and work, for there shall no straw be given you. You shall, yet shall ye deliver the tale of bricks. And they were beaten because here they were trying to gather and find straw when they were not allowed to take it out of the fields where the straw was. They couldn't keep up with the inventory order, and they were beaten. So on top of not having the straw, they had to go around in a horrible state of, of physical health after being beaten. Here in closing, Moses is now in the middle of this seemingly impossible situation. What this teaches us is how desperate their situations are before God delivers them. Israel would learn salvation is from God and God alone. Moses and Aaron would be humble even further to rend them of any pride and put all their trust in God, and Pharaoh would remain hardened, and it would get worse. But there's an interesting verse if we go to Isaiah chapter 36, verse 6. I've been in Isaiah kind of like going around rabbit, kind of like on little rabbit trails this morning in Sunday school class, and now I love the book of Isaiah, and it really brings out the essence of a lot of what we're talking about, many verses. But here's one that says in Isaiah 36, verse 6, Lo, thou trusted in the staff of this broken reed on Egypt, Whereon, if a man lean, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all that trust in him. He said, I will break them like a reed, I'll break them in half. And just like we read in Psalm 2 this morning, He that sitteth in heaven shall laugh, the Lord shall have them in derision. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said unto me, This is my beloved son. This is the one who we trust in. So no matter what happens, can we worship the God of Moses? 
Do you realize that the God that he worshiped is the same one that is alive and well today? The very same God that hears our cries? And that's my petition to you this morning. Read this. See what the Lord can do. You start reading this and you won't want to put it down because it gets far more dramatic as, as you head right in. You know the story, but you won't learn about it looking at the 1956 of the Ten Commandments. You're going to see a lot of cool stuff, but you're not going to get the meaning of the atonement and salvation. Don't get me wrong, I thought it was a great movie, but still, there's a lot left out of it. So anyway, as we look to, as we look to this, we see that over and over again what really strengthens our heart is how God renews His promises. And He renews it by giving names of Himself. He starts off with the, the, the God of our fathers. Then He says, the God of Israel. I am the God of my people that I deliver. Then He'll say later on, the God of banners, the Jehovah Nisi, the one who can never be defeated. Then Jehovah Jireh, the great provider of all things. And these names just keep coming and coming. You'll see Jehovah Shalom, the God who comforts. Jehovah Shema, which really pronounces as a saity, that there is no doubt that His being is absolutely everywhere. We can see it. We just open our hearts up and we see the heavens declare the glory of God. We see all of these wonderful names. And then we see Jehovah Rapha. He's the great physician. He's the one that heals us. He's the one, no matter how bad it gets, the Lord will heal us in His own way. And I'll leave you with that this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we just thank Thee and praise Thee, Lord, for these words that Thou hast given us. What we have studied this morning, that we've learned together as Thou hast taught us this through Thy Word, is that there is no doubt that Thou lovest Thy people and that there is nothing more wonderful than salvation and deliverance. Lord, deliver us from our enemies today. We pray that Thou wouldst put a hedge of protection around these families and this church. And that no matter how things get horrible and worse in the government, if they do, we pray that they'll be changed. Lord, Thou can do that also, of course. That Thou wouldst protect the work here. Show us what Thou wouldst have us to do and help us to bear one another's burdens. Thank Thee for this, this morning of fellowship together. And Lord, bless this spiritual food to our bodies and we thank Thee for it. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.